0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. My name is Jay King. Um, (laughs) Asians don't exist. Um, I don't know. What else can we say to, what's our best Jay impression? This is Andy. Uh, I'm obviously not Jay. Basketball, gambling. Yeah, I hate Luka Doncic. Um,
1: Something Bay Area. (laughs)
0: Yimby's, these Yimby's in the Bay. (laughs) <laughs> uh, this is Andy. I'm with Tammy. Jay is uh, a little predisposed this weekend, a little busy this week, so he'll be back next week probably. Um, but we have hopefully a pretty interesting show for you today. Um, we'll eventually, in, in a moment, we'll have a uh, discussion with Tammy's friend, Slokhi Shah, um, an activist and uh, political organizer on behalf of immigration rights um, against immigration detention in the U.S., um but before then uh you know we have a few listener questions we haven't done this in a while so if we thought we could kind of you know hit the ones that are most interesting most relevant um but i mean first tammy how are you doing you're in you're in brooklyn right now
1: yeah i'm back in brooklyn i'm i'm good what's new with me i don't know nothing i'm going to a japanese market after this i'm very excited
0: what, what do you get out of do you feel, Do you obvious question? Do you feel like do you feel racial animosity when you Do I
1: feel colonized when I go to yeah. Japanese market? No, I feel just joy.
0: Feel joy. <laughs> um do you have a Do you? No, I love it. Uh but like Taiwanese people love it. Do you <laughs> do you have like a sense of like you know how uh, there's like the Korean Yakult yeah, and like the Korean like Calpists and there's like the Korean Cal- Milcus, right? So those, those Korean analogs, these Japanese products. Do you feel like yeah, snobbery, yeah. like the Korean ones are better, or we we perfected it in the colonies? <laughs>
1: <laughs> the only one I'm territorial about is Pepero versus Paki, mm. which I feel like you know Pepero has these different flavor profiles that I'm really into. Why do you? But feel otherwise, like... I don't really care.
0: Why do you feel like it's better? Just it has better Korean specific flavors.
1: Yeah, plus there's like a whole day in Korea devoted to it. So it just seems like a oh, thing really? that is very ingrained. Yeah. Is
0: it um is Pepper, pepper like a, a day. is it like a Chebble or is it backed by one of those chaebol? Is like it's owned I think by so. Samsung.
1: Is it? I was gonna say, I think it's a latte. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm sure yeah. somebody in the audience knows this.
0: But... Yeah, everything is owned by Lottie. Um uh, Yeah. How are you? I, I'm good. Um I was just telling Tammy before. I've uh I've made this kind of unwise decision to go for these long runs this Last few, and this isn't a brag. I'm not trying to like- This is totally a humble brag. No, it's just, it's more (laughs) that we're at the stage in the pandemic where I just have absolute dread waking up and turning on my computer because I know I'll be doing this for the next 12 hours anyway. Oh my God. (laughs) So there's part of me that just like wants to like move my body a little bit. And I'm like much like whatever, like I'm not, I'm running far less than I used to, but uh, we also have like two days of good weather before it becomes like- a snowstorm mm. in the northeast, so I feel like I'd take advantage. <laughs> but I do I do feel like um even though it's the beginning of the semester for me, right? This is like my the beginning of my year, I feel like I'm still like, you know, in like the sixth semester of an academic year that yeah. began in twenty nineteen. Oh my gosh, horrible. And, yeah, and I think a lot of academics so I don't know, I'm just like probably making this unwise decision to like um put off put off my work today. And but um
1: You're not going to campus at all or are you going like once in a while. I am
0: I am to teach. Um, and then we're yeah. still the thing with academics, and I don't know for this applies to like the ten academic listeners we have, is that I feel like we're still in this in-between, neither in person, neither neither fully in person, mm-hmm. neither fully online. Um, so when we we're all online, I think we all of us got in this habit of like committing to a bunch of stuff because like whatever, it takes a second to log on to Zoom, right? Um, and then you I think I forgot how long it takes to commute. How exhausting it is to commute yeah.
1: oh my gosh that's it's
0: true. exhausting to talk through a mask i, I think mm-hmm. i think that's the problem i'm just like always exhausted after i teach yeah um but then at the same time i've made these commitments to like you know do this you know small talk like standard academic talk but it's by zoom and i don't know they're just like it feels like there's like one and a half academic years that are happening at the same time um
1: yeah god i can totally imagine
0: yeah I mean for yeah, journalists. The
1: first time I like taught through a mask, I was panting. Because yeah. I had walked up like three flights of stairs, which is obviously yeah. not that many, but I just wasn't prepared for yeah. the amount of breathing that was required. Yeah.
0: It's it's I mean, it's very sad to even talk about how out of shape we are, but <laughs> it is But also
1: just like I don't know. It was that it, I'm definitely out of shape, but it was also <laughs> just um like you know when you're lecturing you're kind of performing and you're like right. having to project a lot and I yeah. didn't anticipate the breath situation. I feel
0: like I'm screaming like
1: yeah for yeah, 4 yeah.
0: hours a day and the kids are probably I don't know. I, you know you can see like only their eyes and for, yeah. I feel like I'm like screaming to get their attention in mm, a way that keep them entertained, you know. <laughs> and they probably can't hear me anyway like there's an air conditioner, yeah. the door is open, you know, there's noises everywhere. Anyway, so uh, I don't know. I think this uh, it's it's kind of this weird like in between moment that I think is making making return to normalcy like almost harder than if we were just online like fully online.
2: Yeah,
0: um, and I assume that's true of other professions. I um, if I had the brain capacity, I could think of other examples. I mean, for uh, for your job, I mean, you seems like you're doing more in person stuff now, or is it a lot just like. I think so.
1: I guess like the reporting never really stopped, but most of now a lot of reporting just takes place outdoors. So you have to like constantly think about how to finagle these interviews and stuff and get what you need. I think, I imagine it's harder if you are like a radio person because you need to get good sound you know i can kind of be in bad situation like bad audio situations and still get what i need but yeah but yeah i'm thinking more about travel like i would like to do a story that would need to take me to the u.s south and i'm kind of like should i go you know what does that look like and yeah being considerate of the people that you're trying to talk to
0: yeah and i'm sure you also have um this 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 situation where people are scheduling a bunch of online things as if people are online all the time but it's very annoying um speaking of online um our first first topic our first question does come from our discord um it comes from beloved discorder uh i don't even know his real name sans motin um (laughs) that's how i that's how i said in my head i don't know if it's pronounced a different way um who asked this question today um and it's kind of an anecdote where he mentions he has a friend who is having um Conversation with someone else and using the category AAPI, right? Asian American Pacific Islander, and this friend, which we're going to assume is not sound moon. The friend said that the person they were talking to was uh, the PI uh, of of, of AAPI, and that that person objected to the category. That PI Mm -hmm. gets erased or subordinated or marginalized whenever AAPI happens because typically an AAPI, I don't know, organization or I don't know, like, yeah. Any sort of anytime it gets used, it's really about predominantly East Asian, predominantly Chinese and Korean people like mm-hmm. us too, uh, who kind of yeah. <laughs> who hog all the space, right? Um, and so there's that basic question of, I don't know if this is Sansa's question. My question was like, well, why do we use this category? Like, it does. Where does it come from? But then Sansa's more practical question is like, well, what do we do about it? I guess this gets into you know the politics of naming and um yeah. you know every generation seems to choose different names not just for this obviously but for like uh gendered and sexuality and other racial minority groups right they always kind of cycle through these different names um mm-hmm. so you know Tammy and I did a bit of research uh, <laughs> do you want to share what some of your findings Tammy <laughs> what what is this category sure. api yeah.
1: Well, the first thing I thought of was um, I reached out to our friends at the Asian Pacific American Institute at NYU. Um, Friend of the pod, Amita Mangnani, works there. And I know that she's super thoughtful about these categorizations and these terms because she's an Indian American who grew up in Hawaii. And she's very concerned with, wow. you know, Pacific, yeah, issues facing Pacific peoples. And um, I think she's she's done a lot of thinking about this. And she referred us to a very good article from an anthology. Um, the The chapter is by Wesleyan anthropologist Keolani Kaunui. Um And um, Professor... Kauanui basically writes about getting the P out of getting the PI out of AAPI mm-hmm. and sort of indicts both like Asian-American political organizing or social organizing and Asian-American studies for sort of falsely incorporating Pacific peoples into their analysis. Um, I found this article like very interesting and we can circulate it. Um, but I guess like the main gist of it is basically that um in the same way that Asian American is a very like rough and sort of pan ethnic category, Pacific Islander itself is too. And so to group those two together, doesn't actually make any sense in yeah. any sort of way. Yeah. Um, The one thing like, I guess I've always thought of is, yeah, I agree with that, but whenever like Pacific is introduced into like an Asian American analysis, I found it sometimes useful because it points us to like us imperialism <laughs> and kind of yeah. what we share. Right. I was in thinking the, that, yeah. In that region. And so Yeah, I mean, I think there are probably better ways to do that. (laughs) But I I would say like that's my sort of one sort of emotional defense to that. Yeah. What do you think?
0: I'm curious about um, when you mentioned um, the NYU APA, I guess it's called the Asian Pacific. Mm -hmm. I've I've actually thought about what is where did that category come from? Because it does seem like. I've been thinking about this category of the Pacific, um, this is very academic-y, but there was like a lot of writing about it in the 1990s that I think has disappeared because like China has just overtaken yeah. everyone's mind. That's true. <laughs> it does seem like Pacific as a category, which I think is a, still a, a really useful category. Like look at the news, like China and Taiwan joining the TPP mm-hmm. this week, right? Um, or, you know, applying. Um but, uh, oh yeah, it feels like very dated. And I, so yeah, I was right. thinking, like, did NYU, did that institute and also this category when Asian and Pacific are attacked? Is it a very 80s, 90s thing? Um, from my research, which is a Vox article, so much less prestigious, um, was, was, just, was just saying that academics and in particular um, government institutions started using this category yeah. as a shorthand for census reports, which, you know, makes sense that like a census... The logic of a census is going to be different than the logic of like the people themselves and yeah. any political, social self-organization. Um, but it seems that <clears throat> I don't know, I don't know what the older censuses would say, but I guess they would have like you know Chinese, Japanese, Korean, you know Vietnamese, etc. And then they would also have like uh, quote Polynesian, Hawaiian, Samoan, and PI was a way to kind of lump the ladder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there was thinking at the time that if we actually, you know, the strength in numbers, right? That if totally. we, you know, as opposed to having 50 different categories, there might be a sense of solidarity, but then the the, the criticism is that it has had the opposite effect, right? Of marginalization and so on. Um, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't really have an attachment to the category. And I think that, uh, I'm curious if your friend, who's Indian American has attachment to Asian American either, because I think that's the other obvious thing, right? That do South Asians and East Asians, much less Southeast Asians, and, you know, do they, does the category fit those (laughs) as well? Um, Yeah. There was, I assume listeners on the show are vaguely aware there was this kind of big fancy thing in the Times this weekend about Asian American experience, which was, predictable right it was like very much about like a smelly lunchbox story turns into asian pride <laughs> um, and it had this fancy graphic of how do asian americans feel but it was like half fading out which i, I thought it was about like assimilation but i guess it was about how we feel invisible mm-hmm. uh, when you start reading it more but they had these interesting quotes from um, a pakistani uh, american who felt like you know does this apply to them during 9-11 he was racially targeted. Yeah, in a way that East Asians wouldn't be, and now he feels like the the all the talk this last sixteen months, starting from China virus to the Atlanta shootings, is about East Asians and totally. how does how does he as a Pakistani does he belong to that discourse and so on? So it's like stuff like that yeah. always makes me think, like, uh, I don't know. It's just like it's very obviously shows the inadequacy of these categories. I don't. That's not to say we shouldn't yeah. use them, but. Um, I find those like far more interesting than the sort of navel-gazy, you know, the navel-gazy stuff we make fun of all the time um, Mm -hmm. about identity and belonging and all that stuff.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think at the beginning of the sort of like Asian hate crimes discourse wave or cycle or whatever, we did talk a little bit about how that, in that post nine eleven moment of violence, like that definitely wasn't considered like an Asian American problem. Right. And it was somehow like Islamophobia was totally separated from these categories. And I always think about um, the literary uh, scholar, Erin Kunin. She has this book um, that's like about, it's about literature, but, but in it, she talks about how the, in this category, like South Asians, and Southeast Asians are already tacked on to East Asians. Yeah. And then the PI thing is like completely ridiculous and even more tacked on to the what's tacked on. And, right. um, and I think that's still true. I mean, that book's a few years old now, but yeah. And um, in, in the case of the APA Institute, um, Amita included a little bit of anecdote in terms of where it came from. And um, one thing she said was that it's, AAPI doesn't make sense or even the P doesn't make any sense really in Hawaii or California, but in New York, because at NYU in particular, they didn't have any sort of like Pacific studies department. Mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. they sort of brought it in right. to take care of that need for students. And that was in the mid nineties.
0: Yeah. Um, right, so exactly.
1: yeah, I think it is born of this kind of historical moment. Um, and also, yeah, this sort of question of like, Basically, like resource allocation, <laughs> yeah. Whether that's yeah. right, resources of like human resources or sort of economic resources, because they wanted to pull some of the Asian American Studies money, basically, and devote it to yeah this this student population.
0: Yeah, I think I mean some of the um some of the complaints, the specific complaints about how this stuff, uh, how this category is mystifying. I was reading about <clears throat> uh, the you know this Fox article talks about you know, there's a belief that um, all Asian Americans are overachieving on test scores and therefore like are undeserving <laughs> of aid when in fact, if you look specifically right, it's East Asians who, uh, I don't know, game the system or whatever it is. But uh, but the Pacific Islanders um, or Southeast Asians, right, are kind of on the yeah. other side. And so it's kind of unfair to them, right, to be lumped in together. Uh, and like other discourse like that. And overall, the I feel like the general, the general, Sentiment I got from reading a lot of this stuff also is that when East Asia first and then China got rich the last 50 years, that just messed up a lot of things. Because 50 years ago, it was actually okay to think of Korea, Taiwan, and China, less Japan, as as the third world, as colonized countries, as having some sort of shared experience, like you said, of imperialism by the United States or by European powers or by Japan. Um, And, you know, there was obviously talk about the non-aligned movement, you know, between Asia and Southeast Asia and Africa and so on and so forth. Um, But that just seems like kind of absurd today to talk about the rich East Asian countries. um, And you wouldn't have these categories if you just started from 2021. These categories are born from this like post-colonial decolonizing moment that have kind of like they've been messed up. I mean, everything we've talked about on this podcast, I feel like it was a result of what gets messed up when, when (laughs) half of Asia got super rich
1: because of the tigers. Yeah, exactly. I mean, but I think even if we apply that analysis, like the Pacific Island trajectory and their particular history of colonialism is so different than ours, you know, that it still isn't sort of congruent in a way that makes sense to lump. And I think even the census recognizes that now, like that's pulled out and like Hawaiian Pacific Islander is more sort of analyzed alongside, for instance, like Native American or um, Eskimo population. So, um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's
1: more recognition, I think, of that now.
0: Right. Yeah. And the other thing I was thinking was like, like Hawaii is like the obvious place we should think about this is because in Hawaii itself, you have very clearly (laughs) this dynamic of East Asians being the, I don't know if you want to say colonizers, but they're definitely part of the ruling elite of that of, yeah. of the of that state alongside the whites <laughs> and um mm-hmm. and uh yeah i think I, I don't know if i mentioned this on the show like my wife's family uh is hawaiian so I've, I've been there a few times and just kind of like when you get a feel for the place a it's very asian it's like when people mm-hmm. say california is an asian state they always forget hawaii is like way more asian yeah and secondly like yeah there's, so there's as you expect like intra-asian or intra you know asian islander whatever yeah. you want to call it, like the dy- dynamics and yeah, sort of lump Asians together without differentiating between the sort of like the middle class, the upper class, the working class, right. Those who descended from the petite bourgeoisie versus those who descended from those <laughs> who got their land taken away versus those who right. descended from workers. Right. Like, um it just makes a lot of sense that of course there's going to be animosity in this category because if you go to the Pacific itself, you know, you're gonna have the same dynamics. Um,
1: yeah, Taiwan. Well, just... and, the, and y- your your wife's family is not Native Hawaiian, but is yeah, they're Japanese Hawaiian, from Hawaii. right?
0: Yeah, and yeah, and there's I don't know, I I don't know, I don't know what the studies or the numbers show, but it does seem to me like yeah, there's like ethnic, what's the word like uh, people are making maintaining ethnic lines mm-hmm. even in Hawaii. Like there is obviously yeah. a lot of inter, but there's also a sense of like well, Japanese Hawaiian, Chinese Hawaiian, and so on. Um, it's kind mm-hmm. of like a little. It's basically the Pacific Ocean like playing itself out in in one state. Um, Yeah, so I feel like AAPI also... The other thing I guess I would say is that AAPI makes sense when there might be like... When there really is probably uh, fewer people in that part of the world. Yeah.
1: Well, and I think we didn't get to talk about the the question of categories too much with Julian Ogun when he was on our show. But, um, you know, I think... Like knowing some of his activist work in terms of like the anti-imperial organizing, like certainly he is in conversation with a lot of like Asian and Asian diasporic activists because of this shared experience of the U.S. empire being in their states. But I think more like emotionally and historically, it's much more of a kind of Pacific alliance where, you know, Chamoran people are in conversation with like Tongans and Hawaiians. Um, and that that just seems to make a lot of sense. So, you know, I I, I think that this year, a lot of Asian Americans have stopped using AAPI, yeah. you know, would be my guess. Did and I've, I've observed a couple of cases just because it's like we're, when we're talking about stop Asian hate, which seems to be like the Asian topic of the moment, mm-hmm. like we know who we're talking about. Right. And so people are kind of like, we don't need to Pretend.
0: Did you did you ever use it, um, or did you? I actually don't think I come across it in academia.
1: I think like when I was in college, it what we didn't really use it. I yeah. think it was like Asian American, and the the like tricky part of that coalition was like the East, Southeast, and South Asian right. yeah. thing because already it was a brittle
0: right politics, yeah. right? Right. But
1: I don't think the Pacific part was part of that at
0: all. Yeah, yeah. I mean the other yeah i don't know what the solution is in terms of naming but i would say like i still like the idea of asia or like you said the pacific because precisely because it is full of all these contradictions Mm -hmm. that's good like we should retain we should retain a sense of all these contradictions between east and south and japan and its colonies and southeast and, and and indigenous versus like Han Chinese colonialists, right? Like that—that it, like for those of us who are Asian American and have some ties to the region, to think of your your family's history as purely, like, you know, like the state of Washington and Taiwan, for example, and that's it, right? Yeah, that's something that you know, if you look at this New York Times article, that's how most people think about it, right? It's like Mm -hmm. where your parents came from and where you wound up at the end, instead of thinking about actually, like, there's all these other places that are overlapping um and are shaping your world and um you know if you're east asian you should be aware that like if you're from taiwan or korea you should be aware that you know there's a relationship with japan with the united states there that probably is at the suffering of a lot of the rest of the pacific ocean um in china right um, yeah so it's i don't know stuff like that i think is is, is so i think this big capacious contradictory categories like the pacific and like in mm-hmm. asia are useful i, I like to, i like to use yeah. them i know people like frown at the word asia i kind of use it in this sort of like <laughs> tongue-in-cheek way because like i know people it pisses people off
1: <laughs> it's sort of challenge yeah well i think you're pointing to something like paul gilroy meant to do with like black atlantic mm-hmm. right like you set up a framework to think about right. history and migration right. in certain ways and so you know, could the Asia Pacific be the Black Atlantic? You know, right. as a sort of like analytical category, I think yeah. that's really interesting to think about, and I think more people are thinking about thinking yeah. that way.
0: Yeah. So there was a moment. You know, Black Atlantic comes out in '93. It's this big moment for um, cultural studies and thinking about, um, I guess, race beyond one or two countries at a time. There was a opposite movement to have like Pacific studies, as I was mentioning in the '90s. Mm-hmm. It didn't really amount to much. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's really good stuff there. Um, but it seems to have kind of faded away. I think China has just overshadowed it oh, I um, in a way that is not... It makes sense. On the one hand, it makes sense if you just look at the news. like, And people have to like figure out what is China first. But I, I hope they swing back to also placing China within mm-hmm. the, the rest of the Pacific. Because if you look at the news, like, that's how... This stuff is playing out it's not just china u.s it's china australia yeah. china vietnam china you know and so on um and that that makes a lot more sense
1: and now china's inserted itself into what used to be the trans-pacific I, uh,
0: partnership such so. a, <laughs> i have to, I have to read more about it but yeah just the, if you just told someone the story funny. the story of what happened people would laugh
1: it makes no sense like
0: obama created the DBP trump pulled out and now china china has asked japan. and in the meantime abe kept it going and now china has asked japan if they could right
1: join. right and, and it, its entire creation was obviously to right <laughs> go against china and
0: China's like yeah we also want those tax benefits yeah
1: <laughs> <It's> <laughs> well great. anyway i think this is a very good question um yeah yeah and we should i'd love to do more thinking about it on the show um also i think it's sans mouton.
0: oh is it a French thing? Without what is mouton? Without like, mouton
1: is like um like sheepskin. Okay. Or sheep, My Okay.
0: Aunt. Okay. Oh. Okay. Yeah. I've I been think just it been might be a reference
1: his dog, but I'm not sure. Yeah.
0: Sorry for doxing, uh, our Discord. List. He can just change, change his yeah. name on the Discord. Um, you know, there's a couple. We were discussing. The one that Tammy was also suggesting we look at is, uh, from Robbie a psychology professor who's ran very thoughtful emails to the show on our discord or on our Gmail, not, not, everything goes to discord. <laughs> so, you know, we welcome um, all sorts of emails about all sorts of um, aspects of our show on email. So Rabbi writes, um, now that classes are underway. I am in my own world teaching and don't have much interaction with the more centrist administration. Oh, sorry for, you know, for including your criticism of your boss. I would be curious to hear your thoughts on how you navigate the core mission of academia, which appears to me, to be the endless growth and jockeying for funding and prestige while sincerely attempting <laughs> to develop a positive learning environment. It's a big question. Um I don't know, Tammy, you taught at Montana last fall. <laughs> What's your what, what this was your is experience definitely teaching?
1: a question for you? Because yeah, I, I'm, I'm I've never been on time. a tenure track position. <laughs> I know.
0: That's true. I mean,
1: I think um, yeah, I've just done adjunct teaching and occasional fellowships. So I've only had to do the teaching part and not any of the drama part yeah um i feel like during the pandemic it seems like these i don't know these pressures for you guys are much more seem much more intense talking to other academic friends
0: uh why is that d- to your friends
1: i think because of fear of budget cuts mm-hmm. right? right so you know there's so much less hiring and everyone's now freaked out about you know attrition among the students etc yeah. and so i wonder how you've been able to navigate that because i think I know that you're always pressed for time to balance your scholarship and your teaching, but you do seem to care about your. I thought, you about to say to scholar- I thought you were about to say scholarship. I thought
0: you were about to say scholarship and <laughs> podcasting. Um, as we
1: take away time from your work, right, right, um. yeah,
0: you know, as the as 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 the um, Netflix TV show The Chair portrayed, uh, humanists, I think humanists more than social scientists, right, but all these like non STEM fields are freaked out about enrollments. Um, and everything is, I think, I think, I think that's both ways. There's just, there's either the, there's the research aspect of life where you have to have X, Y, Z output um, for your job. But there's also like the, let's say a, the B, the enrollment aspect, which is you have to like yeah. show 30 kids, 30 out of 30 people sign up for your class and so on. Um, So I I wouldn't say that I would say like neither the teaching nor the research is free for, or it can escape the, the quantification mm. and calculation of academia, mm-hmm. um, and I—I I mean, this might be an unpopular view, but like, I don't fight it in the sense that I don't assume my kids. I don't try to like take my kids. I—I I, I use. I've been criticized for using the word kids. I don't try to. Um,
1: <laughs> we know what you mean.
0: I don't try to tell my students not to think about um, how their education will impact their future job, which I know is all they think about, right? Like, I don't I don't try to make them like, I, like it seems impractical to be like, don't think about getting a job, just focus on, I you see. know, this history. The
1: purity me, right? of, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I try to meet them halfway, which I think, you know, all good teachers do. Try to make it seem practical, you know, related to, um, you know, like I teach about East Asia. I also have like uh, elective courses where I just kind of talk about like capitalism, which is where I like smuggle in a lot of like, ideas about capitalism and it's the (laughs) capitalism class where kids are most engaged. Like
2: East Mm -hmm. Asia is a
0: foreign country or foreign continent, but Mm -hmm. capitalism, you know, they lived all their life. And so when we have these conversations about, um, for instance, like the the Atlantic world and slavery and stuff, you can also bring it back to just like, well, you know, what is wage labor today? Like you've all had a job, you know what it's like and so on. Um, And so I think if you choose topics, like, I mean, I have found that when you choose topics that have to do with, capitalism (laughs) that that kids can
1: Hmm.
0: can get into it precisely because they are thinking about their life after college and or even their current life in college you know as they have part-time jobs and um so on but like I don't I don't want to like yell at a kid for not remembering the name of an 18th century Chinese emperor you know like which which might be like I think a certain bookish antiquarian historian's approach like for me it's like Uh, Try to meet them halfway and um, kind of think about like, well, what good is like the stuff you're teaching? What good is it for them in their life? Um, But that's about it. And at
1: this moment, you don't feel like you have to worry at all about sort of, you're not obsessed with sort of prestige concerns or job. Your job feels secure enough for you to do what you need to do.
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, the the thing about the humanist is like nobody cares what we say or do, which is but that's not true. Well, okay, I I guess you don't want to wind up on like people are fired all the time
1: for random shit. You
0: don't want to wind up on with like Campus Watch or whatever those websites are. (laughs) That too, yeah. Um, you don't want to do that. You want to like choose your words carefully. But um, um, you know, I. I feel like everything I say is backed up with facts and numbers. <laughs> uh, well, I think
1: you're also teaching in a moment where capitalist critique and Marxism are mm-hmm. are somewhat welcome in society, right? Yeah, and I mean, I don't, and in the academy, they're not as controversial as at a different moment they might have been, maybe.
0: Like I don't, I don't call it that, right? I don't say like I'm going to give you a Marxist critique. I'm just going to tell you how capitalism works historically, something like that, right? Uh, some phrasing like okay. that. And because everyone since two thousand eight especially is very freaked out yeah. about the economy, they are already kind of fluent or somewhat native to this language of mm-hmm. jobs and flows of goods and money and so on and so forth. And um yeah, if you don't if you don't if you don't if you don't uh poison it with the M word or critical theory or whatever other words <laughs> and just kinda of talk about this stuff, I think I think they, they're open to it. Um and the, the other trick for leftists is to teach Adam Smith, <laughs> as a leftist, and because liberals love Adam Smith, even though Adam Smith right. says very like su- uh, subversive things. <laughs> anyway, those okay. are those are some random thoughts okay. from my from my day job. Shall we start? Okay.
1: All right, welcome Silky Shaw. Silky's a friend of the pod and executive director of an abolitionist immigrant rights organization called Detention Watch Network, which you guys should all check out if you haven't heard of it. Um, I know Silky through journalist friends because Silky also worked at Democracy Now! and was part of a sort of pre time to say goodbye a radio show on wbai called asia pacific forum it just still going through a collective of asian americans and um apparently silky also had a college radio show called <laughs> chutney bubble tea which we can come back
2: to in a minute um
1: silky grew up in texas in an indian immigrant family and now lives in bellingham washington welcome silky
2: Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me
0: on. Great, I'm excited to be a friend of the pod. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, of course. I think we have like five guests from Western Washington at this point.
1: (laughs) We're very PNW show. Yeah. Yeah. PNW pride. Yeah. Silky, actually, in our Discord, people last week were circulating an article you wrote in Truth Out that sort of gives a a kind of diagnosis slash prognosis of immigrant movement stuff under uh, Biden and I'm wondering if you want to just say what that article is about why you felt like writing it
2: yeah I mean initially the article sort of came out of me being one of the dozens thousands of people who are processing 9-11 and having been like a yeah. adult you know like I was 20, uh, mm-hmm. 20 when 9-11 happened so like mm-hmm. 20 years later okay what are we negotiating what does this meant and Really specifically on detention like what's the what are the shifts that we've seen and so trying to sort of lay that out and show that actually in so many ways Republican and Democratic administrations have both led to the growth of detention to where it is now and showing you know Biden in the days that he came into office Detention was at a 20-year low, and it was kind of remarkable that we had this moment where actually we thought we could see a real reduction in the system. And and basically, the opposite has happened. He's um, filled up those detention beds again. So the article sort of gets at those that you know that growth that we're seeing right now, increasing mm-hmm. numbers of people in detention. It's sort of ebbing and flowing based on what's happening on the border, um, but also like how much. Biden is just not living up to the promises he made. I mean, there's been some good stuff he's done, but for the most part, we're in this place where the administration is completely committed to detention as deterrence, and so um, trying to really just push for folks to hold him to his word, say, "Okay, yeah. actually, you you said you you lamented family separations. You said that you were going to end prison profiteering. You said you were going to do all these things, and actually, you're doing the opposite in a lot of ways."
1: Mm. I think people have a sense of sort of kids in cages and like immigrant private prisons. But what do you mean when you say immigrant detention? Like what are the different categories of that system?
2: Yeah. So immigration detention is, um, you know, anywhere from like 150, 250 facilities that are used across the country to hold people who are either sort of awaiting a hearing on their immigration proceeding or, you know, their status, determining their status, um, and/or awaiting deportation or appealing a decision on their case. So they're there for a completely, you know, civil proceeding. Where they, if they have a past criminal conviction, they've already actually either served time or were on parole or other things, and now they're just in the system, waiting to go before a judge or waiting deportation. So. Um, these facilities are jails. I mean, they're jails that are a lot of county jails are used across the country, but also we've seen an expansion of the use of private prisons, especially in the last 20 years. And those are sort of the large scale facilities that are dedicated to immigration detention. So actually, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, Immigration and Customs Enforcement prefers those facilities because they're meeting their need in this particular way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's, I mean, of those the 200 plus facilities that are used, only five of them are owned and operated by ICE. And in, and in fact, those facilities are, most of their services are contracted out. So the whole sort of model of immigration detention is one of subcontracting, um, outsourcing everything. And, um, and yeah, I, I mean, I would say that it's, it's sprawling. It's across the country, but probably, you know, some of the places where you have the largest numbers are Texas, Arizona, California, um, Florida, you have really high numbers of immigration detention. and in, in the Trump administration, a really significant growth in detention in Louisiana, where um, they actually moved towards some serious crim- like criminal legal system reforms that emptied some of the beds that end up just going and becoming ice beds.
0: So you're mostly talking, I think in the last few years, it sounds like we're mostly talking about the southern border as the site for a lot of this stuff, but your article brought it back to like you said like 911 was kind of you said the not the beginning but i guess an inflection point in kind of giving yeah. political cover for the government to kind of boost all these numbers um <clears throat> was that like a national like what how has the geography changed because obviously 911 wouldn't be just about the southern border or um, the war on terror wouldn't be just about the southern border um like what has there been a shift like what, what, what was that like handoff from sort of the war on terror anti-muslim um regulation to like this new emphasis, or not new, but like this re- renewed emphasis on the Southern border in, in recent years.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think on the period of time when the 9-11 happened, it was actually interesting because in many ways, the private prison industry at that time was going bankrupt. And in fact, some of the earlier campaigns that I worked on were trying to get universities to divest from private prison companies, which still are ongoing to some degree, but um, And they were getting bailed out by Wells Fargo and Lehman Brothers, and um, they they saw nine eleven as this opportunity, so they started to build some spec facilities, and that's some of the early campaigns that I worked on in Texas as an organizer, where they were like, "Let's just put this five hundred bed facility here, this thousand bed facility here," and that's you know, if we build it, they will come. It was like that sort of framework, and and it worked, and um, you know, under the Bush administration, I mean. I think everybody, know, like DHS still is just like a mess of an agency. And at the time, you know, there was 350 jails in use. People had no idea where anybody was. Um, people were transferred constantly. And so, and there was like some pretty serious reports about deaths in detention, um, And the folks who were in detention at the time, it was a a mix, but there was also these like sort of large scale raids that were happening in immigration detention, um, or not in in immigrant communities. So like you, and and in fact, one happened here in Bellingham where you just had like a lot of targeting by ICE agents. Um, The the sort of shift that I think is important, like there's been sort of a few shifts, but one of the important shifts to name before getting to the border piece is, and of course the border piece is happening throughout this, um, mm-hmm. period. But when you look at detention specifically, when Obama came into office, a lot of what he did was sort of make, you know, he made people believe that targeting people with criminal convictions was a progressive reform. Like he was doing the right thing by doing that. And so right. he made the machinery much more effective. ICE police collaboration went up. Um, he also, you know, these sort of concerns about detention that were coming up uh, with the deaths and detention, New York Times articles and other things happening, he said, okay, well, like actually the, the way to respond to this is to get these dedicated facilities for immigration detention that private prison companies are willing to run. And so he consolidated the system going hmm. from like 350 facilities to a lot larger facilities. And in terms of that geography question, like what they intended to do and what we've seen here is have facilities like the Northwest Detention Center, which is a geo-group facility, which has expanded, expanded, expanded to about 1,500 beds now, be the hub for detention in the Northwest. And they've tried to do this in the Midwest. They've tried to do this in the Northeast. And it's been a fairly successful game of whack-a-mole that um, a lot of our members and allies have played in those regions. And so um, that's something to name. But I think, you know. Basically, for a good portion of the Obama administration, we saw a lot of targeting of people through the criminal legal system, criminal punishment system, where people were you know, just being transferred from jails, being targeted by local police. And then 2014 was sort of the shift where actually, like, now all of a sudden, there were all these families arriving at the border. And initially, Obama said, oh, well, family detention isn't great. So they ended it at the Hutto Detention Center in Texas, but then in 2014, brought it back in like full Mm -hmm. scale, opened up Dilly, converted Carnes. Um, And basically since then, I mean, I think at that point when you looked at the detention system, it was like sort of half and half of like folks in the interior, folks apprehended at the border. Um, Now, I mean, it's well majority folks apprehended at the border. And a lot of the folks who are being targeted in the interior are... Being transferred from prisons, who you know are being transferred from jails and prisons in their communities, and and there are some mm-hmm. state strategies to prevent that, but um, but yeah, it's so so it's like basically the people who are in detention are a lot of folks who are seeking asylum and people who have severe past crimes, um, and it's sort of a different, you know, makeup of who it was under the Obama administration or even under parts of the Bush administration.
1: So even though there were those few sort of high profile mass raids that Trump did, that's not really who we're talking about primarily in detention facilities at this point.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's happening. I mean, like the other thing that's happened over the course of the last 20 years is this huge expansion, not just in the number of detention beds, which reached its height in 2019 at 55,000 under Trump. Um, but also the agents. So you have just so many Mm -hmm. more CBP and ICE agents who are, so it's like this, like police prisons, like they're all working in conjunction. I think in some ways, actually the organizing, the sanctuary organizing that's happened across the country has actually been a big part of preventing interior enforcement from being as, as much Mm -hmm. as it could be.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, we should mention, you know, kind of the occasion for this conversation is also these uh, photographs, right, that came out last weekend um, of CBP, basically right, the border patrol in the, in the southern border. Was it, was it in Texas or where was- where In Del Rio, ph- yeah, yeah, in Texas. Yeah. Of, uh, I guess, officers on horseback, right, chasing after um, asylum seekers from, from Haiti. Um, like what? what's, I mean, I th- everyone's kind of saw these photos Circulating the the kind of social media take was that the Biden administration, so Biden and, you know, the press secretary has disavowed all that and said, like, this is horrible. We'll stop doing this. The social media take was sort of like, oh, they're just um, trying to create a wall of alibis. But in reality, like they're fully culpable for this and so on and so forth. Did you feel like, uh, well, first of all, maybe like maybe you can like give us a kind of brief context of what's going on. With especially with um, the immigrants or the asylum seekers from Haiti. And also, like, what was your general reaction to seeing those photos? Did you feel like, well, this is on the one, like, did you kind of roll your eyes? Like, this is um, spectacular, blah, 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 the kind takes away from the real story. Or did you feel like, oh, this is good because it'll bring attention to what is a very pressing issue that we should all pay more attention to?
2: Yeah, no, I think that's a good question. I mean, I, so on, in terms of, Haitian seeking asylum. I mean, there's a very, very long history in the US of doing everything possible to expel, deport, detain, um, interdict, like prevent people from even arriving here in the first place. Um, And in fact, it's such it's a big part of the sort of early creation of this detention system, like, in many ways, like in the early 1980s, we didn't have the type of system we do now. And I think a lot of what we've seen of the growth of detention is very much, you know, sort of unique to the U S in that, like we have, we are a carceral state. We're like committed to incarceration this particular way. So that sort of grew, but in the early eighties, when the Mariel boat lift happened and Cuban and Haitian migrants came to Florida, that's actually when they opened up Chrome, which was sort of like the first big detention center, like, and it's a ice facility, INS facility at the time. And, um, and so you know I think you know, I think a lot of folks have been learning about some of that history and, and also the use of Guantanamo to detain Haitians um, during the HIV epidemic. And so I think um, you know there's so much about the ways these policies and, and these approaches happen in the context of anti-black racism and, and what that how that impacts things. but I in terms of seeing the photos, I mean, it's really interesting. I think there are, a lot of catalyst moments in our work, right? Like we, as people who organize and try to find ways to engage people, there's these moments that happen. And, you know, and I think, and I I mean, obviously last summer, like George Floyd was such a particular moment that really sparked something, I think, in the immigrant rights context in the last few years, the, the family separation crisis, which... I think for a lot of folks who have done this work for a long time, we're like, well, actually families have been separated for a long time. It, it might have happened in a different way. or And also all incarceration is family separation, all deportation mm-hmm. is family separation. So that's a little, you know, but it, it was a moment. And yeah. um, I think also last summer, I mean, not last summer, it's actually exactly a year ago now. Um, when the whistleblower report came out about the forced hysterectomies at the Irwin Detention yeah. Center in Georgia. I think it was also one of those moments where it was like, okay, this is a really horrible thing that's happening. And like the system itself is a problem. And I think similarly mm-hmm. last week, I mean, absolutely horrifying to see those photos. And we all know what border patrol is. I mean, you you saw these, yeah. I mean, maybe Majorcas or whoever was saying, oh, like border patrol there is to protect... To protect people, to save lives, and then uh, no more dads would be posting like all these images of border patrol, like pouring out water of people who are coming to the desert, and uh, you know, like for it, it, it's it's all a farce, and so you just sort of like are looking at it, and you're like, okay, the few bad apples frame is there, um, but we know, like the the whole point of these agencies, and and I think even more so, I think this is when one of the biggest challenges. Is that under the Obama administration, there was like this sort of moment where it was like, okay, maybe there's this new memo that says you shouldn't target these people. Or maybe there's something that we can like use to influence what ICE does. Mm -hmm. All of that is that much harder. Like, I I didn't believe in it then necessarily, but all of that is that much harder after four years of Trump when actually these agencies are essentially Trump's mob. Um, And so, yeah, I think, I mean, I think it was, it's, it's you know they are important moments because it's like Biden saying one thing and like actually the images and what we're seeing is something different um but what he does with that is is the question and what we demand of him is the question because even in the sort of like kids in cages moment like if you look there's like the number of times people you know googled kids in cages <laughs> like 2 years ago versus how much they do now but we still have you know 15,000 yeah. um yeah Unaccompanied kids in these facilities. So I don't know. It's it's a it's a challenge, yeah. but I do think it is a moment that now, you know, media is maybe pan- You know, there was the like mm-hmm. Caitlin Dickerson piece in The Atlantic, and that are sort of like, oh, you know, he doesn't get a full pass. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah. Do you, I mean? Do, are you amongst amongst your friends? Are you all predicting or optimistic that there will be some policy change? <laughs> Um,
2: it's really hard to say. I think it's a question of how we can mobilize people. And there have been moments, you know, I think like under Obama, I, I think they're, you know, both like the not one more fight and that leading to DAPA, obviously um, the deferred action for parents. Um, and, you know, there's been these moments where it's like something has happened and they'll do something. So the other moment under Obama that sort of happened towards the end was there's this whole other shadow system of immigration prisons in the Federal Bureau of Prisons that is also privatized of people who are non-citizens in the Federal prisons and the Bureau of Prisons. Um, And Sally Yates came out with a memo a few months before Trump was elected saying we're actually going to get rid of the system. We're gonna like yeah. stop working with private prison companies. And that felt like such a catalyst moment and, or like such a moment that was like based on, in in my perception, like there was a lot of really good reporting and whistleblower reports and all that kind of stuff. But then also like it was the height of BLM, like Ferguson conversations and it was like mm-hmm. something they had to do. So I think that's a question for me right mm-hmm. now is like, are there gonna be moments that open up space for us to, to get something. What is that? I, you know, I think detention, there's no question like in a lot of ways, detention's like a fairly easy thing to get rid of. It's, you know, it's literally people are in a civil proceeding. There's tons of people who could be detained. They aren't detained. There's tons of people who are detained that don't have to be. Hmm. Um, And I think they're making these decisions based on deterrent, like supposedly thinking it's going to deter future people from coming and also to make sure that they can win the midterms next year (laughs) that's basically it that's you know like that's that's the calculation so I think the question is like if they'll be pushed enough to do something else and like what's that thing Mm -hmm. um obviously we're also having like the big reconciliation legalization fight right now and um so there's yeah there's you know there's a lot of different things at play
1: yeah I'm curious about it it sort of goes to your, like the nature of your organization and also like the strategy kind of in terms of legislation and policy, which is like, I've always found the focus on detention really fascinating because the immigrant rights movement or movements is so fractured and there's so many different layers. And so you have people fighting for, you know, humanitarian stuff like asylum and refugee status and TPS. And then you have the DACA folks and, you know, nobody, like everyone kind of is in conversation, but they're also sort of these slivers of fights and, So I think in the discourse, there's over the past like 20 or 30 years, we've talked about quote unquote, comprehensive immigration reform. And you know what does that mean right now? And in a way, like your organization sort of cuts through all of that, because you're sort of, first of all, you're advocating for kind of like the quote unquote, bad immigrants, like people who may have criminal records, right? You're not saying everybody has to be a saint to stay here. And you're kind of looking at a system that that runs across these different sort of categories of immigration status. So I'm just wondering, um, yeah, I guess like one, why focus on detention out of all the things you could focus on in immigrant rights. And then two, like in this particular moment, um, are people just kind of doing their own sort of, you know, small thing in immigration, or are you all talking about comprehensive immigration reform?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think first and foremost, we focus on detention because, it's a piece of the puzzle of the prison industrial complex. And it's, you know, inhumane and demoralizing and deadly in some ways and quite awful. Um, But I think uh, another reason that is, you know, maybe not as clear to people is that it's a key driver of deportations. Like the existence of detention allows for mass deportation. And so, you know, When it's so many decisions often about who is in detention or who gets targeted is sometimes even based on the space that exists. So here at the Northwest Detention Center, there is, I think, an 1100 bed guaranteed minimum. So it's a 1500 bed facility. But they they say, you know, we are going to like ICE has to pay Geo Group. For 1100 beds regardless and that creates an incentive for ICE to say well if we're paying for them we should just have people in there and for a long time there was actually a very specific quota that was put in during the Obama years that said we have to detain you know we have to maintain no less than 33,400 beds and eventually 34,000 beds um and that you know like created this incentive. And then there was like this sort of measure for Congress to be like, are we enforcing the laws to the degree we're supposed to enforce them? And so, you know, it it facilitates deportation. It makes it um, much more effective. And I think getting rid of it is a key is gonna be really important to um, stopping deportations, but also it's just like inherently inhumane. It makes it really hard for people who are in detention. They don't have counsel. They don't, it it actually makes it so much harder for them to fight their case. and so that's why we work on detention. And then on comprehensive immigration reform, I mean, it's, it's, it, it was like watching the Mallorca's press conference the other day where he mentioned it. I was like, I feel like I'm in 2010. Like, what is this moment? Because, like, <laughs> right. the truth is, it's not, we're really not in a CIR moment again. It so it like,
1: seem like it. Yeah. And well,
2: CIR is sort of this, like, okay, we're, you're going to get some good stuff with a lot of bad right. stuff. And the last time right. we had a big bill that, did that was in twenty thirteen, and actually, the mm-hmm. Tension Watch Network came out against it. Eventually, when there was this huge amendment for border militarization, mm-hmm. um, the Corker Hoven mm-hmm. Amendment, and it ended up failing. Um, but I think what's interesting about now, because governing be- has become so different, is that actually, you know, so we're we're a part of this coalition called We Are Home, that is actually the like one of the big entities trying to push for legalization, and also has this this piece that i help lead um that is trying to end interior enforcement and and it's different than the obama years where actually in so many ways these groups were sort of fighting each other and i think Mm. trump like the veneer was off like actually we can't sort of operate in that way anymore but Mm. even in the reconciliation fight actually these things are happening very separately and so it's like a different it's a different ball game it's not like one big bill it's actually sort of more like we're in this like piecemeal things could happen. And I think in so many ways, the enforcement conversation is less about whether we get legalization or not, because unfortunately, a lot of that has to do with this person who's unelected, this parliamentarian. Um, (laughs) But I think, um, you know, a lot of it is actually like these questions around the border and like, how do we make, like, if we wanna get rid of Title 42, Mm -hmm. which is the quote unquote public health measure that prevents Mm -hmm. people from seeking asylum at the border, um, what are we doing to make border militarization even more intense? So I think those questions are actually in play right now. And, um, and Mm
0: -hmm. I
2: think one of the challenges on detention right now, you know, I think, you know, working in a community that has a lot of lawyers, I think a lot of people are like, well, if we get rid of the, like the detention system allows us to let asylum seekers in. And I'm just like, no, like we don't want people still think of detention I as housing see. and shelter, and it's like, no, this is wow, right. a carceral situation. And so, there's this weird thing where it's like, either the options are stop everybody, have remain in Mexico, have these other interdiction models like a detention center in Guantanamo, or have mass detention in the US. Like, and they're not giving us other options
1: mm. because these advocates are just so used to that that way of thinking of the the system being. Well, I don't think okay, the advocates
2: have... want that. I'll say that's clearly the, <laughs> the, the advocates are definitely, everyone thinks sure this is all horrible. Into
1: it, but yeah, but I think but they're thinking about, I guess, like a detention as a kind of pit stop for an asylum, Like, is yeah. that, that's people are just.
2: Well, kind of like or like in members of Congress. And I, I think there's just gotcha. a lot of that, you know, and I think everyone, you know, I feel like last summer was such an interesting moment because it was, like I said, like it was the summer of solidarity. Like we were like, okay, <laughs> yes, we're so down. And um, all these, even like more moderate groups came out and said, yes, we'll end attention. You know, we we put this like blueprint together and everyone was like, okay, let's get end attention in this. And and all these groups signed on like 100, more than 150 groups. And I think people were really there. I think what's hard now is that we see the conditions and I think people are like, we don't want to be laughed out of the room, but it's like, hey, wait, we were there, like, a year ago, why are we shifting now? And so I think those, that's for us, at least like, how do we kind of stay true to our vision on this?
1: Mm. Um, I'm gonna channel Jay for a second. Cause last week we were, t- he, he had said like, that he thought a lot of this sort of energy online that was there for Bernie and other kind of moments in left discourse seemed to have evaporated. And I was thinking about abolish ICE. Um, like in your world what was abolish ice and what happened to it wow that's a good question
2: um I I don't even know like it was it was like I mean it was like a hashtag it was a moment there was a lot of us who um tried to capitalize on it and I don't think did so very successfully because we weren't like quite prepared um Hmm. but I think that Yeah. I mean, it was the family separation moment. And I think people were feel, you know, like that sort of clarity of like, oh, these, these institutions are a problem. It's just sort of also like last summer, whenever um, the DHS agents were in Portland, like where people were like, let's dismantle DHS and like Ben Rhodes and whoever, like people were starting to say that kind of thing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think that like, you know, for abolish ICE, I think it was, I think what, like, one of the things that was great about it is, like, open up this idea that, like, ICE as an agency, like, the whole point of it is to, like, target, detain, like, yeah. arrest, detain, deport immigrants. And people started to understand, like, that's the only point of it. Mm-hmm. And I think, in some ways, there was also a lot of the folks who were like, look, it, it's only 20 years old. And and as if, like, things were yeah. so, like, a lot better with <laughs> INS, which is just... not necessarily true. So So it was, like, a confusing moment, I think, like, you know, I think like Mark Pocan um, from Wisconsin wrote that bill and it was, it, it didn't, I don't know, like I, I think, you know, I think it's an important thing to continue to call for. And like, I think we need to like disrupt things even more than just like getting rid of ICE. I think the hard, yeah, the hard part right now is that they're on an agenda of like reforming ICE agents or reforming CBP, like they're they're doing their sort of like Mm -hmm. racial equity thing of like oh look we're gonna (laughs) we're gonna investigate we're gonna do all the things but i mean so i think in so many ways it is still an important thing to hold on to and understanding that like there is no way to like reform ice and in fact like what i and I, and, and even this has been a lesson for me this year like a lot of people have been so obsessed with these memos like this prosecutorial discretion memo or like there's the pregnancy memo that came out or directive that was like oh you know but then ICE has all this discretion and they can still do whatever they want so I think there's like this element of like what like what's the point like these are all just like liberal fantasies of like oh look this is a suggestion but they're not going to do it so I I think you know ultimately we're committed to abolish ICE one of the strategies that we've sort of Moved on during the Trump administration was this campaign called Defund Hate, which is really trying to defund ICE and CBP and say, hey, look, like every year they've been trying to get more and more money. And so we've been successful at like Mm -hmm. mitigating how much money they get um, or exposing, you know, during one of the hurricanes where they just took a bunch of money from FEMA to open more detention centers um, and stuff like that. So I think there's, you know, I think that's like a concrete piece of the a ball shice bucket,
0: but yeah. Mm. I, th- I think this could be a good transition to I think some bigger questions we also wanted to talk about in terms of migration in general. Um, well, at least you know, I think I wanna talk about because you talked about like the problem with these like liberal solutions, right? And how like reform is sort of this weird in between. And I think the the question that's in my head is you you hear this discourse about how the Trump administration was not that different from Obama and Biden is not that different from Trump. Um, And I remember like a year or two ago reading like all about Stephen Miller and how he was the migration czar and he was the one in Trump's ear and he had all these horrible ideas. He was a white supremacist and so on. And it was very easy to construct that story, right? That this is Stephen Miller's fault. Um, For a lot of this, well, Stephen Miller's no longer there, right, and Trump is no longer there. So I think the question is like, what do liberals, what do the the Democrats, what do they think they're doing with immigration? What do you think is their attitude They, you know, the story for Stephen Miller and Trump was sort of this, we can scapegoat these people instead of bringing back jobs. We can say that, you know, they're responsible for the loss of jobs and so on and so forth. That's not the public message of the Democrat to, to like scapegoat immigrants for, to win elections, right? And so I guess the question is like, why are they doing this? Like, why do, why are they upholding a lot of Trumpian era policies like, if we were to like guess like what's in their head for why this these kinds of policies are necessary.
2: Um, I mean they've they've bought into the media and Republican narrative about the border. I think that's ultimately it. Like they they've, you know, it doesn't look good for them to have people arriving at the border. And, you know, the the sort of infrastructure at the border is not one that's welcoming in any way and so it looks even you know like so i think there's just like this challenge where there's a lot they 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 need to do a lot to make things better but they're like that's not where their investment is and so i think yeah i mean you know i think like when you think about the democrats over the years like especially with i mean clinton in so many ways and what happened during Clinton created the foundation for all of this. Like it it just like created just a whole ability to have like a deportation machine this massive. And then 9-11 was like, Hey, we're going to put a lot of money into it. So Mm -hmm. let's like do this. And then I think, like I said, Obama, I think he was like, I'm going to make this better, but I'm going to make, but like, I think, and I think in some ways it's also a movement. Like I, you know, we were not abolitionist at the beginning of the Obama administration, we, you know, a lot of the framework was like detention as a last resort, which I never Mm -hmm. really understood what that meant. Um, But I think that like, you know, we, we did that work within movement to say, actually, what we want is abolition. And Mm -hmm. um, I think similarly, when you look at the movement of um, dreamers, for instance, who so much of the narrative was I came here as no fault of my own and then eventually shifted to actually I want to protect my parents. And actually this is like, (laughs) there's bigger things going on here and also learning. I think there's all this, the immigrant rights movement, at least the folks who work on enforcement started to really understand the role, the criminal legal system that prisons and policing play in our society because of the way Obama used those systems to target immigrants. Mm. And so that plus like, Black Lives Matter. Like there's all this stuff that's sort of happening that like forces this movement to shift from being just a movement that's like, hey, we want to pass right. a bill for legalization because that's mostly what the movement has been for a really long time. It isn't a mo- <laughs> it, it, right. it wasn't a movement necessarily sort of fighting these things. And so I think those shifts are a part of it. But then when it comes to the Democrats and your question, Andy, I feel like it's complete, it's just all politics, it's like they could do this. And they I think they wanted to start doing this. And we saw that with their yeah. ending the contract at Irwin in Bristol and then hit a roadblock, right? Like they just like, they're like, oh, like actually. And then, and then on top of that, there's sort of, I mean, I think the thing that's been hard for me to negotiate is like they're defending themselves against bad policy when they have like opportunities. So, you know, a Nevada judge came out and said that 1326, which is one of the um, laws on the books that's been on the books for like 100 years that says that people who um, re-enter the country without documentation can be incarcerated for 18 months to two years. Um, And it it actually expanded the Federal Bureau of Prisons population significantly, um, that that was racist and unconstitutional. And then Biden appealed it. And so you're just like, wait, this is an opportunity to get rid of this really terrible law that is horrifying and that really. um, Yeah. So like, why,
0: why, like, why? (laughs) Like, they could just say, well, you (laughs) know, the court, the court decided it was out of our hands. So uh, I I feel like there has to be some ideology that's actually at play, right?
2: Yeah, I think that they see it as deterrence. Like they think that if they're incarcerating people, if that they're deporting people, if that they're performing these expulsions, that more people won't come. Like I think that's their game right now, and they, you know, they're really nervous about what more people coming and the way immigration has been politicized, what that means for their ability to win elections. Mm -hmm. So
0: I I guess the meta question is, I don't know if like you or your organization takes a stance is 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 there just like no good in between is the policy like pro open borders, like no immigration, like regulation. Like, I think that's, I don't know. That's kind of like the meta question that's in my head. Um, these debates, but I don't, I don't know if that's like, I mean, I think we we are
2: having those conversations and I think the challenge is, you know, I think what's for me as somebody who's been working on abolition for a really long time and working on against prisons, um, for a very long time, the, that, that question feels easier. Like it's a, a little easier to just be like, get rid of this system. Yeah. I think like how the border works and if we move towards like an EU model or do some other things that are um, better, I think those are harder. Um, but I do like in so many ways, like the the sort of approach of non-reformist reforms or abolitionist reforms have been like a guide for us of, you know, I think there's all these instances. So like the kids in cages stuff, like, the framework in the conversation within our community is like, well, it's so bad for kids to be in CBP custody. Let's, you know, and, but then the option is these like influx shelters that are also horrible. Mm. Yeah. Um. And it's actually like, wait, but our demand should be like end title 42 or like let's figure out the asylum system where like people aren't feeling the need to send their kids alone. Like that's, you know, like there's like a lot of other things that we can do than like, I feel like we get to these like stopgap solutions that don't get to where we want to go. So I think, you know, I think in a lot of ways, like my take on how to make this more humane is um, we have to change policy. That's a lot harder to do these days, given, given the state of Congress, but I think like defunding is huge. Like so much of the militarization at the border, so much of the fund, funding going to agents and incarceration, I mean, just allows all this to happen. So if we can like chip away at the infrastructure, it could have an impact.
1: I was, um, I was reading something that Obama's former immigration czar, uh, Cecilia Munoz wrote, and, um, you know, she writes that um, one of the one of the big problems kind of in, in, in institutional regulation of immigration is that it's very disconnected from foreign policy and that on the advocacy side, too, the people sort of talking about war and empire are not talking to the people who are talking about immigrant rights. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts on that, because I think like in your analysis, like even in the Truthout article, you you don't do that. Like You have a very integrated view where you're seeing the way the U.S. works in the world and how that you know, leads to people coming here, et cetera. Um, but, but in the same way that you've said, like since the Clinton era, or maybe even more recently in this BLM era, people have been kind of thinking more about immigration and policing together. Do you think more people are thinking about immigration and foreign policy together?
2: Yes and no. I mean, I think there's, like, there was this whole period of time in the immigrant rights movement where, like, people would just tell us that talking about root causes didn't pull well, so we weren't allowed to talk about (laughs) it, which is totally absurd. Wow. Um, And, but I think that has shifted. I think the hard, I mean, to me, in many ways, like, you know, one of my biggest struggles with the immigrant rights movement for a long time has been that it's like not a racial justice movement. And it's like Mm -hmm. had a process of trying to be that more. And I, you know, I think moments like this last week, like forced that a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's also not like an anti-war, anti-imperialist movement, right? Like it's not thinking about what's happening abroad that leads people to Mm -hmm. come here. And I think the, yeah. So I think that's like been a huge challenge of like trying to fill out like it, it it's so like because of the the little scraps we can get from these administrations yeah. it's like it you kind of have to be in this framework of yay america and that's mm-hmm. really exactly. hard <laughs> right and yeah. i don't know it's a challenge but I, you know i think people are doing it and i think people mm-hmm. want to push back and i i mean i know that like a lot of folks over the years have pushed us on the like american values front. we're just like we're not that's like not who we are, but, um, (laughs) yeah, I don't, it's, it's a challenge for sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's so much pressure to do the sort of flag waving thing in immigrant rights. Right. And I think also, but it, but it is really interesting that this period since the Clinton crime and immigrant crime bill in 96 has also been our period of forever wars in the Middle East and kind of those things are, you know, they're related. But yeah. yeah, it's hard to do policy-wise, I feel.
2: I think they're related. And I think there's also a, a little bit of a danger in us, like, naming, like, you know, I think there's the, like, because you were there, mm-hmm. I'm here sort of thing. And I think that's important to name, mm-hmm. like, you know colonialism imperialism etc play a role but also like the u.s is just a wealthy nation people are gonna come yeah, they're right. always gonna come and so i totally. think we have to be it's really true Yeah. careful and and i think in just like this new world of climate disaster and emergency yeah. Yeah. like this is this is the reality so i think you know i think mm-hmm. some of those questions of like is it actually about shifting a- asylum policy or like you know or like i mean i mean i think especially and people don't talk about this as much now but like if NAFTA hadn't happened, how differently would this have looked, Mm -hmm. right? Like, and so I think there's, um, there's a lot to reckon with there. And it's hard to know, in the way that we do our work, how to like, bring that in all the time. But I think um, people are craving it more. And I think that's one, Mm -hmm. that's one of the things that's been interesting about these, like, catalyst moments. It's like, I think people are trying to understand the border more and like, what we can do. And so I think that's an opportunity too. because I, and even on detention abolition, like, That was a part of like, I feel like that's actually the consensus in the immigrant rights movement. And that just like wasn't true five years ago. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, one thing I was thinking also when I read through a lot of this stuff is that there's a lot of historical resonances uh, if you study like Asian American history and the history of how all these laws came into place in the first place they're almost entirely anti-Asian laws. In the 19th and early 20th century, like the CBP has created in 1924, the same law that bans Asian immigration I wonder. I mean, I'm just curious. It sounds like you're saying like there isn't much historical consciousness in these kind of discussions where you have to talk to politicians all the time. You have to just kind of focus on the present. Um, But it it does seem like that's an entry point, at least for those of us who are first or second generation, but are not from these particular parts of the world that are uh, being targeted. Right? That is a a point of like uh, overlappers, perhaps like sympathy or empathy for those who feel like, well, these don't these laws don't affect us because um, you know we're like our families come from Asia as opposed to like. Latin America. but I mean for me at least it's like it's instructed to think about the kind of overlap of those policies. Uh, the other thing I was kind of curious about was um, there's this article that I that I kept coming back to when I was um, researching this a few years ago. and I'm sure you've heard of, like, this research by this Eduardo Porter and Carl Russell, who wrote uh, the article in The New York Times it seems like this is their broader research about how there's a lot of mythology there's a lot of myths around migration and attitudes about it in the US. Um, And just like, for instance, people in the United States think that 36% of the country are immigrants, when in reality, it's like 14%. Um, And the US has fewer immigrants than Germany or Sweden. There's this belief that 25% of immigrants are unemployed, right, they're a drain on the economy, when in fact, it's 5%. Right. So there are all these like, ideas um, about why immigration is bad. And they're always kind of like, outsized and detached from reality again a lot of ways that resonate with like the historical anti-immigration laws from the past um and i I wonder if like if you actually like read through what porter is saying it almost seems like they're saying like america is almost at risk of like having a shrinking population and not enough immigration and and, like economically we should actually like and have open borders and so on and so forth do you think like yeah, like, what do you do? You make do you make do you do you think that this is like a just a messaging thing, or like the Democrats and the liberals, or just like even liberals themselves, just have this wrong idea about the way that immigration works in this country? That to have "quote unquote" good immigration policy is itself kind of the problem. Like, you just we should just have an embrace of all immigration, um, and the sort of like Obama technocratic approach is, is kind of flawed.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's coming through more. Sometimes it feels like it's coming through in a like sort of like. Capitalists like America is gonna be this like superpower <laughs> we're gonna be the smartest and have the brightest and all that kind of stuff so that feels a little weird but um but I think yeah. that at the same time like you know yeah I mean I think this like question of like I think you know some of the things a lot of the things that we've done is just sort of like break through this idea that like like people knowing immigrants in their communities and what that looks like, as opposed to like, what do immigrants do for America, but more like in a community level, I think has been our approach a little bit more. Um, And like having us like people seeking asylum in your community or just like how people are responding to folks coming from Afghanistan right now. But I think, um, Mm -hmm. you know, we all do all this polling. And I think one of the things that's interesting that I found recently, and I think this is so much Trump era dynamics is that There was some polling, I think that ACLU or somebody else did, um, that showed that actually like a lot of folks were more supportive of even people with past criminal convictions who had been here for like 20 years than people who are like a a woman and child who are like arriving at the border. And I Mm -hmm. think that is like so much a challenge because you're just like, oh, like we've actually just like gotten to this point even more so where the outsider is like, like I just feel like wow, we've gone yeah. so far. So it's like one thing to have all those stats, but like how we even go to a different place feels like a challenge. And it's always been that way here, but I think it's also like, yeah. So I don't know, there is a lot more like, if you've been here, if you've been in my community, people are willing to fight for you more or or at least be like, okay with you.
1: Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, wow, it's so challenging. Um, for people who are already sort of in our left community <laughs> or in left communities, what would you recommend they read or explore to try to understand these issues better? Because I think, as Andy said, and as I've probably said to you before, I think some of this stuff just seems feels so intractable, and the question of kind of what to do with the border, like it's yeah, it doesn't seem like there's a really <laughs> a clear answer for for leftists.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's a challenge, like the, the, you know, the book that came out recently, Border and Rule by Harshawalia, I think is from Haymarket is, I think a really good resource to understand how we got to this point and actually like, not just about the US and also about like what's happening in other parts of the world in terms of borders. And um, I think Todd Miller's work in particular also does that sort of work to figure out sort of the border question, but I think we're in this moment in the immigrant rights movement where actually like, that is the big question for us. Like, where do we go from here? I feel like we've kind of Mm -hmm. like abolish ICE is like a product of the movement actually being more clear on what we have, what happens in the interior. Um, But I think on the border, we're, we're really struggling right now. So I think, I mean, not, you know, like we're doing what we can, but it's a, it's a challenge, (laughs) (laughs) obviously. Um, So I think, you know, those are, those are like, I think so much of this is about like doing the work in community and figuring out ways to like engage. And so I would recommend both like reading those resources, reading, um, you know, I think there's probably other books I'm forgetting right now, but, um, but also like connecting with community folks who are doing this work, who are either like supporting people who are currently detained or supporting people who um, have are seeking asylum or, or just like, there's a lot of organizations. I mean, Detention Watch Network works with groups across the country, and a lot of volunteer groups um, that are doing that work. And I feel like, in many ways, like doing the work is the way to kind of understand these systems better and and figure out then ways to intervene and um,
0: support. Cool.
1: Thank you so much for coming today, Silky. Yeah. Thanks yeah. so much really appreciate it. Yeah. And everybody should check out Detention Watch Network and support their organizing. And Silky has a really powerful Twitter <laughs> timeline that can enrich your understanding of immigrant rights and maybe some TV shows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Binge watching my- bad TV. What are you my watching? Ben- what are you ben- watching ben- right now?
2: <laughs> what am I watching? Um, well, we, I, we just started watching the morning show again, which is like kind of what a horrifying that? show. It's like this. It's like a Matt Lauer. Like, <laughs> like it's like basically about the Matt Lauer story. But like, you know, like Steve Carell is Matt Lauer, and so oh. it's like this really disturbing. So watching that finish, finished <laughs> <laughs> I was. I know everything's so dark. Yeah. um But yeah. I, you know, we'll get back to like I saw like Great British Bake Off and Sex Education are back, so maybe that'll happen. Soon.
1: Yeah, Sex Education season three is so good. Is it good really?
2: really?
1: Yeah. I binged it.
2: Hmm. Oh, nice.
1: Yeah, highly recommend.
2: <laughs> yeah. I gotta do that. I feel like um, some positiveness is good. I, totally. <laughs> things are things are kind of grim. So things are kind of grim,
1: yeah. On that note, yeah. Thank you for tuning in to Time to Say Goodbye. You can always reach out to us on email at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or on Twitter, TTSGpod. Um, also please subscribe via Patreon or Substack. Thank you guys so much. See you next week, Andy. Talk to you later. Bye, Silky. Thanks,
0: Chelsea. Time to say goodbye.